This is a Federal News Network podcast. You might have noticed energy, the climate and infrastructure have become leading topics for the federal government. My next guest says that's beginning to manifest itself in sort of a bellwether agency, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commissioner, FERC. Here with what's going on, an energy specialist and partner at the law firm Morgan, Lewis & Bacchius, Levi McAllister. Mr. McAllister, good to have you on. Hey, good to be on. Thank you for having me, Tom. And just review briefly for us the area of energy that FERC actually oversees. My understanding, it's mainly the long-haul interstate transmission of energy. Is that correct, or is it more or less than that? That's exactly right. So FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, it's the federal regulator of the energy industry. Of course, all sectors of the energy industry are also regulated by the state. And so the question, as you pose it, is where's the FERC jurisdiction start and stop? FERC regulates the electricity sector, as well as the natural gas sector and the hydro sector. So for both electricity and natural gas, the FERC's authority is what they call wholesale sales of energy or interstate transmission or transportation. So to put that into a context that the average person understands, meaning the person who's not practicing before FERC, if you have a transmission line that transmits electrons across state lines, FERC's going to regulate that. If you have a sale of energy that's being sold for subsequent resale, FERC regulates that as well. And it's the same concept within the natural gas sector as well, the molecules of natural gas. So a very broad jurisdiction uh, and also very long-standing regulatory authority dating back to the Federal Power Commission sure. in the late 70s and, and even before that. All right. So you have written that you have observed a shift in their regulatory and enforcement actions to policing infrastructure development and ensuring compliance with authorizations granted in certificate orders. What does that mean and how is it different from what they have traditionally done? So let me sort of provide a context for the listeners as far as FERC's, what we call their enforcement authority. A lot of folks may remember the California energy crisis dating back to around June of 2000 and what happened with Enron and those type of activities. Now, at that point in time, FERC as an agency had very limited oversight authority to issue civil penalties for wrongdoing in the energy markets. It's just something by federal statute that was really sort of lacking. So that happens in 2000, 2001. A couple of years later, Congress passes the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which among other things provided FERC a very clear statutory mandate and obligation to investigate and penalize instances of misconduct in the energy markets that are subject to their jurisdiction. So interstate transmission of electricity, natural gas, and, and wholesale sales. FERC's penalty authority is significant under the statute. They have a penalty authority of a little bit more than $1 million per violation per day. And so when you think about the carrot and the stick approach, FERC has a very big stick as far as their enforcement authority is concerned. So Dating back to 2005, 2006, when they received this authority and really started to implement it, initially, FERC's focus was what I like to call commodity trading or energy markets. So the actual purchase and sale of electricity or natural gas. And FERC was really focused on manipulation of the markets, fraudulent activity in any number of sort of factual circumstances or schemes as alleged by FERC. And those types of investigations really produced significant penalties for market participants. 
Separate and apart from that, particularly in the natural gas sector, when FERC authorizes the development of a natural gas pipeline, they issue what is called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity. And that certificate issued by FERC says, okay, you can construct this asset that you're looking to construct, but you have to meet all of these various conditions during the course of development and operation. Tying those two concepts together, what we have seen more recently, really in the last two years or so, FERC enforcement's continued focus on energy market trading, in other words, potential manipulative activity or fraudulent trading, but also a focus on are entities meeting those conditions? Are they violating those conditions or assets that have been constructed and in operation for many, many years? Are they now starting to violate conditions that were imposed years ago? FERC is focusing on that, especially as it relates to environmental conditions, which is an area that, as I mentioned, as you teed up, they didn't really focus on sure. at all in their enforcement oversight until more recently. We're speaking with Levi McAllister. He's a partner at the law firm Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchius. And what could be their motivation? I mean, could it be that they're simply trying to get rid of pipelines in an indirect way because the administration has said it wants to end the oil and gas industry? I don't know that it would be that extreme of a motivation. I do think that there are two things at play here. The first is when the FERC Office of Enforcement was initially created, following the passage of the Energy Policy Act, it was a smaller office, smaller in terms of of number of people that staffed it, uh, the type of budget that the office had uh, with which to operate, and it has grown over time, and it's now a very significant and very large office. And so I think this shift in focus or this addition in focus to the Office of Enforcement is, the first reaction is it's a product of it just being a larger office, a deeper skill set, more expertise, okay? But second, and more importantly, It does reflect, I believe, a change in the administration, both with the Biden administration and as it sort of flows downward, the composition of FERC itself, and in particular, Chairman Glick being installed as the chairman at FERC. Chairman Glick has been very vocal and open about his intention to consider environmental impacts of infrastructure development, consider Uh, social justice uh, or environmental justice related issues in the course of what FERC is reviewing as it relates to asset infrastructure. And so the flip side of that is in the enforcement space, I do think that there's, uh, I don't want to say an explicit mandate by any means, but there is sort of a policy from the top down, being the chairman's office down, to focus on compliance with environmental conditions. And as an attorney and someone who advises, I presume, companies that are in this business, and that's one of Washington's thriving sub-legal categories is energy regulation, is Chairman Glick, do you believe, within his mandate legally? Or are some of these enforcement actions going to get to the Supreme Court, which will say, well, no, Congress didn't mean for you to regulate environmental justice of wires and pipes? That's actually a really interesting question, and I want to be careful because I don't want to speculate too far as to what may or or may not be within the illegal authority just because, of, you know, obviously I want to be mindful of where I may be involved in the future as this sure. stuff evolves. But what I will say is that FERC's authority and the Office of Enforcement's authority is extremely broad, and there is a tendency to bestow a tremendous amount of discretion from the courts to the agency and how they interpret their authority. And there's well-settled law on that point. 
What I will also say is that there are some pending cases before various courts of appeals that deal with the idea of where FERC's authority starts and stops. Not in the environmental compliance space, not in, in the environmental justice space, but sort of in a, in a different tack, but still concerning where their jurisdiction starts and stops. How those cases are decided could become relevant if and when some of the existing enforcement matters ultimately make their way through the courts. What I will say, just one caveat, and I'm going to get really down into the weeds here, but FERC's enforcement authority, I've mentioned the Energy Policy Act, but it flows into the Federal Power Act for the electricity sector and the Natural Gas Act for the gas sector. A market participant's access to the courts for relief differs depending on whether they're in the electricity sector and therefore subject to the Federal Power Act or in the natural gas sector and therefore subject to the Natural Gas Act. So market participants still do have access to the courts, but it's a little bit of a longer road that they have to travel in the gas sector than the power sector. So I raise that only because as we think about cases, current FERC investigations that may make their way into the courts, it's a longer lead time when we're talking about gas investigations and gas assets. Sure. And a final question pursuant to some of this expanded regulatory activity that you've seen. Is there any rulemaking pursuant to that that you've seen FERC undertake? Not in the enforcement space, but when we go back to the chairman's office and this idea of emphasizing environmental justice and looking at environmental impacts as it relates to the energy industry overall, there are some policy statements that the commission has recently issued in the context of certification of natural gas assets. Those policy statements, they're not actual rulemakings promulgated under the Administrative Procedure Act, but they are uh, do reflect the policy of the commission. They were issued maybe about a month or two ago and were recently put on hold because of some of the opposition that made itself apparent following the public release of those policy statements. So to directly address your question, in the enforcement space, we're not seeing those rulemakings, but the broader commission, we're seeing those efforts through policy statements, and they are very contentious. And it's unclear at this time, you know, even though the chairman may want it to go one direction, that's not necessarily the way that the commission itself is going to go. Levi McAllister is a partner at the law firm Morgan, Lewis and Bacchius. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to his advisory at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive online. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. 
Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.